0: Volume two, chapter three of Clayhanger by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume two, chapter three, the new house. A house stood on a hill, and that hill was Bleak Ridge, the summit of the little billow of land between Bursley and Hanbridge. Trafalgar Road passed over the crest of the billow. Bleakridge was certainly not more than a hundred feet higher than Bursley, yet people were now talking a lot about the advantage of living up at Bleakridge, above the smoke, and out of the town, though it was not more than five minutes from the duck bank. To hear them talking, one might have fancied that Bleakridge was away in the mountains somewhere the new steam cars would pull you up there in three minutes or so every quarter of an hour it was really the new steam cars that were to be the making of bleak ridge as a residential suburb it had also been predicted that even hanbridge men would come to live at bleak ridge now land was changing owners at bleak ridge and rising in price Complete streets of lobbied cottages grew at angles from the main road, with the rapidity of that plant which pushes out, strangling branches more quickly than a man can run. And these lobbied cottages were at once occupied, cottage property in the centre of the town depreciated. The land fronting the main road was destined not for cottages but for residences, semi-detached or detached. Osmond Orgreave had a good deal of this land under his control. He did not own it, he hawked it. Like all provincial and most London architects, he was a land broker in addition to being an architect. Before obtaining a commission to build a house, he frequently had to create the commission himself by selling a convenient plot, and then persuading the purchaser that, if he wished to retain the respect of the community, he must put on the plot a house worthy of the plot. The Orgreave family all had expensive tastes, and it was Osmond Orgreave's task to find most of the money needed for the satisfaction of those tastes. He always did find it because the necessity was upon him, but he did not always find it easily. Janet would say sometimes, "'We mustn't be so hard on Father this month. "'Really, lately, we've never seen him with his cheque-book out of his hand.' "'Undoubtedly, the clothes on Janet's back were partly responsible "'for the celerity with which building land at Bleakridge was developed, "'just after the installation of steam-cars in Trafalgar Road. "'Part 2. Mr. Orgreave sold a corner plot to Darius.' He had had his eye on Darius for a long time before he actually shot him down, but difficulties connected with the pairing of estimates for printing had somewhat estranged them. Orgreave had had to smooth out these difficulties, offer to provide a portion of the purchase money on mortgage from another client, produce a plan for a new house that surpassed all records of cheapness, produce a plan for the transforming of Darius's present residence into business premises, talk poetically about the future of printing in the five towns, and lastly demonstrate by digits that Darius would actually save money by becoming a property owner. He had had to do all this and more before Darius would buy. The two were regular cronies for about a couple of months that is to say between the payment of the preliminary deposit and the signing of the contract for building the house but the contract signed their relations were once more troubled Orgreave had nothing to fear then and besides he was using his diplomacy elsewhere the house went up to the accompaniment of scenes in which only the proprietor was irate osmond Orgreave could not be ruffled he could not be deprived of his air of having done a favor to Darius Clayhanger. His social and moral superiority, his real aloofness, remained absolutely unimpaired. The clear image of him as a fine gentleman was never dulled nor distorted, even in the mind of Darius. Nevertheless, Darius hated the sight of the house ere the house was roofed in, but this did not diminish his pride in the house he wished he had never set eyes on ormond orgreave yes but the little boy from the bastille was immensely content at the consequences of having set eyes on osmond orgreave the little boy from the bastille was achieving the supreme peak of greatness he was about to live away from the business soon he would be going down to business of a morning soon he would be receiving two separate demand notes for rates soon he would be on a plane with the vainest earthenware manufacturer of them all ages ago he had got as far as a house with a lobby to it now it would be a matter of two establishments beneath all his discontents moodiness temper and biliousness lay this profound satisfaction of the little boy from the bastille moreover in any case he would have been obliged to do something heroic if only to find the room more and more imperiously demanded by his printing business part three on the saturday afternoon of janet Orgreave's visit to the shop edwin went up to bleak ridge to inspect the house and in particular the coloured lights in the upper squares of the drawing-room and dining-room windows He had a key to the unpainted front door, and having climbed over various obstacles and ascended an inclined bending plank, he entered and stood in the square hall of the deserted, damp, and inchoate structure. The house was his father's only in name. In emotional fact, it was Edwin's house, because he alone was capable of possessing it by enjoying it to darius to bursley in general it was just a nice house of red brick with terracotta facings and red tiles in the second victorian style the style that had broken away from georgian austerity and first victorian scucco and smugness and wandered off vaguely into nothing in particular to the plebeian in darius it was of course grandiose and vast To Edwin also, in a less degree. But to Edwin it was not a house, it was a work of art. It was an epic poem. It was an emanation of the soul. He did not realize this. He did not realize how the house had informed his daily existence. All that he knew about himself in relation to the house was that he could not keep away from it. He went and had a look at it nearly every morning before breakfast when the workmen were fresh and lyrical when the news came down to the younger generation that darius had bought land and meant to build on the land edwin had been profoundly moved between apprehension and hope his condition had been one of simple but intense expectant excitement he wondered what his own status would be in the great enterprise of house-building all depended on mr orgreave Would Mr. Orgreave, of whom he had seen scarcely anything in seven years, remember that he was intelligently interested in architecture? Or would Mr. Orgreave walk right over him and talk exclusively to his father? He had feared he had had a suspicion that Mr. Orgreave was an inconstant man. Mr. Orgreave had remembered in the handsomest way— When the plans were being discussed, Mr. Orgreave, with one word, a tone, a glance, had raised Edwin to the consultative level of his father. He had let Darius see that Edwin was, in his opinion, worthy to take part in discussions, and quite privately he had let Edwin see that Darius must not be treated too seriously. Darius, who really had no interest in ten thousand exquisitely absorbing details, Had sometimes even said with impatience oh settle it how you like with edwin edwin's own suggestions never seemed very brilliant and mr orgreave was always able to prove to him that they were inadvisable but they were never silly like most of his fathers and he acquired leading ideas that transformed his whole attitude towards architecture for example He had always looked on a house as a front wall, diversified by doors and windows, with rooms behind it. But when Mr. Orgreave produced his first notions for the new house, Edwin was surprised to find that he had not even sketched the front. He had said, We shall be able to see what the elevations look like when we've decided the plan a bit. And Edwin saw in a flash that the front of a house was merely the expression of the inside of it merely a result, almost accidental, and he was astounded and disgusted that he, with his professed love of architecture and his intermittent study of it, had not perceived this obvious truth for himself. He never again looked at a house in the old, irrational way. Then, when examining the preliminary sketch-plan, he had put his finger on a square space and asked what room that was that isn't a room that's the hall said mr Orgreave. but it's square edwin exclaimed he thought that in houses houses to be lived in the hall or lobby must necessarily be long and narrow now suddenly he saw no reason why a hall should not be square mr Orgreave had made no further remark about halls at the time but another day without any preface he reopened the subject to edwin in a tone good-naturedly informing and when he had done edwin could see that the shape of the hall depended on the shape of the house and that halls had only been crushed and pulled into something long and narrow because the disposition of houses absolutely demanded this ugly negation of the very idea of a hall again he had to begin to think afresh to see afresh he conceived a real admiration for osmond Orgreave not more for his original and yet common-sense manner of regarding things than for his aristocratic deportment his equality to every situation and his extraordinary skill in keeping his dignity and his distance during encounters with darius at the same time when darius would grumble savagely that ormond orgreave was too clever by half edwin could not deny that Edwin's sisters got a good deal of Mr. Orgreave through Edwin. He could never keep Mr. Orgreave very long to himself. He gave away a great deal of Mr. Orgreave's wisdom without mentioning the origin of the gift. Thus occasionally Clara would say cuttingly, "'I know where you've picked that up. You've picked that up for Mr. Orgreave!' The young man, Benbow, to whom the infant Clara had been so queerly engaged— also received from Edwin considerable quantities of Mr. Orgreave. But the fellow was only a decent, dull, pushing, successful ass, and quite unable to assimilate Mr. Orgreave. Edwin could never comprehend how Clara, so extremely difficult to please, so carping and captious, could mate herself to a fellow like Benbow. She had done so, however, they were recently married, Edwin was glad that that was over, for it had disturbed him in his attentions to the house. Part Four When the house began to go up, Edwin lived in an ecstasy of contemplation, I say with deliberateness and ecstasy. He had seen houses go up before. He knew that houses were constructed brick by brick, beam by beam, lathe by lathe, tile by tile. He knew that they did not build themselves, and yet, In the vagueness of his mind, he had never imaginatively realized that a house was made with hands, and hands that could err. With its exact perpendiculars and horizontals, its geometric regularities, and its Chinese preciseness of fitting, a house had always seemed to him, again in the vagueness of his mind, as something superhuman. The commonest cornice, the most ordinary pillar of a staircase balustrade, Could that have been accomplished in its awful perfection of line and contour by a human being? How easy to believe that it was not made with hands! But now he saw, he had to see. He saw a hole in the ground with water at the bottom, and the next moment that hole was a cellar. Not an amateur cellar, a hole that would do at a pinch for a cellar, but a professional cellar he appreciated the brains necessary to put a brick on another brick with just the right quantity of mortar in between he thought the house would never get itself done one brick at a time and each brick cost a farthing slow careful yes and even finicking but soon the bricklayers had to stand on plank platforms in order to reach the raw top of the wall that was ever rising above them the measurements, the rulings, the plumbings, the checkings. He was humbled, and he was enlightened. He understood that a miracle is only the result of miraculous patience, miraculous nicety, miraculous honesty, miraculous perseverance. He understood that there was no golden and magic secret of building. It was just putting one brick on another and against another, but to a hair's breadth. It was just like anything else. For instance, printing. He saw even printing in a new light. And when the first beams were bridged across two walls... The funny thing was that the men's fingers were thick and clumsy. Never could such fingers pick up a pin! And still they would maneuver a hundred-weight of timber to a pin's point. Part 5 He stood at the drawing-room bay window of which each large pane had been marked with the mystic sign of a white circle by triumphant glaziers and looked across the enclosed fragment of clayey field that ultimately would be the garden the house was at the corner of trafalgar road and a side street that had lobbied cottages down its slope the garden was oblong with its length parallel to trafalgar road and separated from the pavement only by a high wall The upper end of the garden was blocked by the first of three new houses, which Osmond Orgreave was building in a terrace. These houses had their main fronts on the street. They were quite as commodious as the clay-hangers, but much inferior in garden space. Their bits of flower-plots lay behind them. And away behind their flower-plots, with double entrance-gates in another side street, stretched the grounds of Osmond Orgreave, his house in the sheltered middle thereof. He had got cheaply one of the older residential properties of the district, Georgian, of a recognizable style, relic of the days when manufacturers formed a class entirely apart from their operatives. Even as far back as 1880, any operative might with luck become an employer, the southeast corner of the Clayhanger Garden touched the northwest corner of the domains of Orgreave. For a few feet, the two gardens were actually contiguous, with naught but an old untidy thorn hedge between them. This hedge was to be replaced by a wall that would match the topmost of the lobbied cottages, which bounded the view of the Clayhangers to the east. From the bay window, Edwin could see over the hedge and also threw it onto the croquet lawn of the Orgreaves. Croquet was then in its first avatar. Nothing was more dashing than croquet. With rag balls and homemade mallets, the Clayhanger children had imitated croquet in their yard in the seventies. The Orgreaves played real croquet. One of them had shone in a tournament at Buxton. Edwin noticed a figure on the gravel between the lawn and the hedge. He knew it to be Janet by the crimson frock but he had no notion that janet had stationed herself in that quarter with intent to waylay him he could not have credited her with such a purpose nor could his modesty have believed that he was important enough to employ the talent of the orgreaves for agreeable chicane the fact was that janet had been espying him for a quarter of an hour When at length she waved her hand to him, it did not occur to him to suppose that she was waving her hand to him. He merely wondered what peculiar thing she was doing. Then he blushed as she waved again, and he knew first from the blood in his face that Janet was making a signal, and that it was to himself that the signal was directed. His body had told his mind. This was very odd. Of course he was obliged to go out, and he went. Muttering to himself. End of chapter three, volume two.